Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded backstage at the Caramore Center for Music and the Arts in Katona, New York. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please subscribe to the show. U.S. agriculture, if you look at it as a way to make food, it makes no sense. We would not make a system that we have. If you were to come down from Mars and say, we want to use this landscape to create food for the people who live here, you would not do what we're doing. Mm. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make sense. So the only way to make sense of the U.S. food system and why it works the way it does is to understand where it came from. Like, it was just a lot of choices made that were kind of improvisational in the moment that got us here. And those choices were generally a bunch of settlers show up in a boat and they say, I want some property because... It wasn't really about making food. It was about if I'm in charge of some land, then other people have to work for me and I'm in charge. What are greens and how do they work? 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 Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with modern composer and 2021 Pulitzer finalist, Ted Hearn. Ted's work is perhaps best described as socially engaged commentary, and his latest work, Farming, addresses the lasting impact of settler colonialism on agricultural degradation and labor alienation. The piece was commissioned for the Grammy Award-winning choir, The Crossing, and the lyrics draw from a wide range of texts, including 17th century correspondence from William Penn and a contemporary speech from Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Also joining us is crop scientist and agriculture expert, Dr. Sarah Tabor. Sarah is host of the podcast Farm to Tabor and was a resource to Ted for some of the research that went into farming. Sarah holds a doctorate in crop health and has decades of direct experience working in both the farming and manufacturing trades. Fundamental to her work is a belief that good food systems are possible but not without, quote, breaking our bad habits with labor. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Farming, Unraveling the American Relationship Between Agriculture and Labor. Hi, Ted and Sarah. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Howdy. So, Ted, this piece is brimming with content, to say the least. So we've got quite a bit to unpack. That's right. I mean, uh, the crux of the piece is a conversation between William Penn and Jeff Bezos. Um, You know, two very wealthy men um, with a lot of power and a belief that they're doing the right thing. And before we go any further, I want to suggest to our listeners that they pause the podcast and spend the four minutes watching the promo video for Farming because... If you're anything like me, you'll have little frame of reference for this kind of music, so the conversation might be a bit abstract. So now that you've done as much, I'd like to carry on with this. And we've just seen a quite stirring performance of the piece. We're joining you from Westchester in New York, and uh, the choir has performed Ted's piece. And I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about it beyond what you just mentioned in terms of the exchange between uh, Jeff Bezos and William Penn, because it's also, it's imagines, is it, would you describe it as a utopian corporation? <laughs> I mean, a dystopian? Cor- I think that uh, in this piece, the choir is imagined, there's 24 vocalists there. And I think they're imagined as a 
maybe a corporation that believes that it's utopian. Um, yeah, we wanted to think of um, a way to incorporate the identity of this choir who uh, has sort of been trained in classical music. It's mostly white people. And uh, their like, spirit, what am I trying to say exactly? They're members of a corporation that, a corporation called Farming, and uh, they believe they're making the world a better place. They are developing new technology. Their mission is to make the world more livable, more healthy, and to create a new type of food even, a new type of health. So the, the piece begins and ends with um, advertising text from Uber Eats. And what I did was I set the Twitter feed of Uber Eats in the year following the onset of the pandemic. The corporation opened up again after, I mean, I think they closed for um, a couple of months. Um, May 1st, 2020, they said, we're back. And now you can get food delivered to your door. And windfall. Course, windfall, of yeah. course. And you know, I mean, the, the, what are the ramifications of that? And who's delivering the food, of course, is right. the obvious question, right? But I was really struck by that proclamation and also just the idea that, you know, who is the we when a corporation speaks? You know, like, who are the people that are actually, like, powering it? And um, what agency do they have to speak for the values and the actions of the corporation itself, right? So... What I did was I found uh, every time that the corporation spoke for, for itself in this, with this pronoun, with this we pronoun, and set every one of those to music. Okay. Um, so that's the way that the piece is framed. Yeah. And then I thought it was interesting to think about the people who you know, are at the top of the hierarchy in that corporation and you know, what their aims might be and how they might relate to the people who do the work. Right? All, I mean, all, all of this uh, sort of... Um, the way that the piece and the libretto for the piece, um, like, could you define libretto for some more of our just yeah pop, our pop listening sure. audience? Uh, well, the libretto is the text for the lyrics, right? Specifically from opera back in the day, it's an opera word, yeah, yeah. And I guess it, I guess it implies that there's like a narrative or that there's a story happening. And in this piece, there sort of is, there sort of isn't, because the text is drawn. It's all primary source text that comes from different sources and different time periods. And while we're here, let me out myself as a total Philistine and just say, how do you define the genre in which you work as a composer? Um, that's a tricky question. I mean, I think like... Well, see, what you do is very unique. A lot of it is very hybridized and there's a lot going on, as our listener knows, because they've just seen the promo for your piece. But I also want to say that I was sent the score for this piece. Mm -hmm. And I've seen conductor score where all the parts are written out and there's multiple staff, but I had never seen that level of detail and notation with synthesizer stuff, like filter sweep here, you know? Oh, yeah. Right. Well, all the color matters, right? Yeah. I mean, um, so, I mean, what, what, what type of music is this, I guess, is what you're asking. I mean, I yeah. think hybrid is a really good word. It's a giant piece of choral theater electronic opera or something like that, you know? But I don't, I don't know. I try to not think about exactly like how to, how to define it. No, hundred percent. You know? Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about how the piece is framed. When you sit down to compose such an ambitious piece, could you just give me a, like a, a snapshot of, of how that works? Because yeah, that's what, that's what's very interesting to me is just mm -hmm. because I'm like, this is not verse, chorus, verse, chorus stuff. So it's, I'd, I'd want to know from a musician's perspective how that works. Yeah, I think that a lot of, a lot of this music is actually verse, chorus, verse, chorus in a way, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not that influenced by 
most classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, I did go to classical music school. My mom is an opera singer, was an opera singer. Um, but I feel like most of the time the, the artists that I'm really influenced by are not working in, a, in an idiom you'd call classical music, right? Sure. Um, and because of that, I take a lot from like pop forms. And, and that's like, like that. Aphex Twin... Oh sure, yeah, okay. yeah. Apex Winner. I mean, this piece is like super influenced by like Sophie or like JPEG Mafia, like people who are using okay. synths in like really incredible ways. You know, electronic musicians and uh, like an oversaturation of sampling. Okay, um, but uh, you're talking about like what informs the musical decisions. I mean, mm-hmm. the the first thing to say is that as an artist, my role, my first job, I think, is to reflect my experience in the world, right, and to mm-hmm. reflect, reflect the world through the work in some way or another, right? Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, when I was, I was sort of tasked with this piece when thinking about farming, mm-hmm. and that was it. That's all they that, gave that, you. That's all they gave me, right? It was just like one prompt, which I think you, I could probably have disregarded if I really didn't want so to So this was commissioned it, but, for the choir, and they commissioned you. Right. Donald Nally at The Crossing, um, you know, said to me that uh, we have a long relationship working together. Okay. Um, you know, I have a ton of respect for what he does. He's an amazing musician. We also come from different places and, and we tend to challenge each other. We tend to sort of give each other projects that are like a little bit beyond what we're comfortable doing mm-hmm. in order to make something new. You know, so he asked me to write about farming, I think because it's a personal topic for him and he grew up on farmland. Mm. Um, I think he was feeling sad about the land that he grew up on and what it has become and sad about the climate and sad about food production or something like that. Um, but he just said, farming, go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, being from the city of Chicago and having lived like every minute of my life in an urban area, it seemed like a curious choice. But because of our relationship, I felt like, okay, I, like he's asking me to do something that mm-hmm. I don't know how to do. And that's, that's what's going to make it interesting, right? That's what's going to make it something that I, that I can grow from. Mm-hmm. So in the course of research, I came across... Dr. Tabor's work, and that's where I really started to explore what the connections are between modern agricultural practice or agricultural practices in our country mm-hmm. and other labor practices, right? Because part of what I've heard Dr. Tabor talk about so much is viewing agriculture within the context of labor. Sarah, you recommended this book um, by Susan Sleeper Smith, maybe? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's I just called? interviewed her on my podcast, actually. Really? Oh, my God, amazing. <laughs> it was so great, yeah. What's the um, book? Indigenous Prosperity and American Conquest. It's about um, indigenous peoples in the Ohio Valley. So like Miami, uh, Shawnee, um, Haudenosaunee to some extent, uh, just the farming systems that they had and how they're pumping out lots and lots of food and how it's a lot easier to resist colonialism when you are making lots of food and it doesn't take you a lot of labor to do it. So that left them a lot of time to do other things like pursue trade. They had trade networks going all across North America before Europeans showed up. And then, you know, once our ancestors did show up, they're like, oh, more people to trade with. And they grew actually quite wealthy. So that's where, um, you know, and they're coming with like new fashion trends. That's There was um, a lot of mixing and melding of both different tribes, how they did their clothes and wore things, and also with European patterns as well. So um, like you look at beadwork today, it, a lot of that kind of grew out of that time period when, you know, originally they would use things like... Um, I think it was porcupine quills was originally the material they used to do that kind of work. And then when glass beads showed up, they're like, oh, these are fun too. We can do the same kind of art with these and have a lot more colors and things like that. And so that's kind of how beading became a really important form of decoration. 
for a lot of different tribes is because they're doing all this trade with each other. And then, you know, the glass beads were available through trade with European settlers as well. But a thing we kind of forget is that they, like Europeans showed up and quickly did a number on a lot of the coastal tribes, but the Ohio Valley, the communities in there stayed very strong and just as trading partners for a couple hundred years. So it was not an immediate sweep. It was not like, oh, it's smallpox devastated everybody. And then the place was empty and we just claimed it. It was like, there was a lot of vandalism of the food system that settlers did because they were like, oh, as long as they can feed themselves with this little work, we never stand a chance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. like, a lot of the conquest of the Americas, it was not about guns, germs, and steel. It was just straight up vandalism of, of farms mm-hmm. in order to, t- to take that land because they saw how productive it was. They were casing the joint. Yeah, um, and George Washington yeah. himself, right? Mm-hmm. Led a, yeah. led a uh, brigade to um, like burn crops in the yeah. Ohio Valley, right? I, yeah. So that was that was a whole thing. And that was really educational to me like because... You know, I knew some things about indigenous agriculture, but just like how it played into the community and what allowed them to do in terms of labor was, it's just not an angle that most people look at. And so it was really, really nice to see that and just kind of go like, oh, they had a really good system. And then like the only way that settlers could win was by wrecking it. And so it was just, it's just vandalism. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting to yeah. see how food systems played a role. In- I want to point our listeners to a great episode from your podcast. It's the seventh one, because you highlight there's some standouts in terms of indigenous wisdom and farming specifically in Mexico and Africa. But I want to put a pin in that because I want to just, let me just ask you one specific question Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I just want to know a little bit more about your process. Say that middle piece, let's call it the hook, the what are greens and how do they work? So when you sit down to match that with music, what do you remember about how you did that? Water greens and how do they work? That's from the FAQ page on uh, Farmer's Fridge, on fr- the website for Farmer's Fridge, which delivers, um, I guess, organic food in little containers uh, so you can eat them on the go. You know, they have a rewards program called Greens, and it asks you what are greens and how do they work, and then it explains that, right? So, you know, for obvious reasons, I thought that was a provocative or layered text to set to music, right? And I mean, I'm really interested in how how the adjacency of music and text can interact in a conversation, right? I like, really don't have a lot of interest in setting the text as if I wrote it, right? It should be a commentary. It should be a conversation. So this piece, Farming, has several movements that I would call advertisements. And, you know, Sophie said when they asked her what genre of music she wrote, she said advertising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that for the advertisements in this piece, I wanted to construct a language that, the corporation might feel was marketing in an acceptable way to a new audience or to the youth or something like that. So there's this ironic use of electronic music, of dance music. And well, that and as you're saying that, and that it's an advertisement, it's it's aggressively suggestive. The cadence, the delivery of it's very staccato, and mm-hmm. and it's got kind of a, a Stepford sheen to it. Yeah, you know, we talked a lot about that with the vocalist, you know, because timbre is so rich, right? It was so rich with information. And if they sing it, if they sing everything the same way, or, they, you know, it's going to sound, quote unquote, good, but there's not going to be like a ton of perspective in it, right? Yeah. So they do, they are called to change the color of the delivery subtly throughout every, every part of the piece. Okay. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a sheen. And I think that when Donald was working with them, he, I mean, he was instructing them to really, he was asking them to like smile through the song mm. in a commercial way, you know, and just really get up on the mic and really, quote unquote, sell it, right? Yeah. So those, the greens are just very bright. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. If you suspect that food production in America is irreducibly complex, you are probably right. 
But if you want help navigating the topic from more angles than you can imagine, look no further than the Farm to Tabor podcast. Join crop scientist Dr. Sarah Tabor for deep dives on indigenous food systems of the Midwest, donut science, and everything in between. Sarah's reporting on U.S. agriculture is the most incisive and accessible I've ever come across, so check out Farm to Tabor wherever you get your podcasts. So did you know before you'd met Sarah that you wanted to make this about labor as much as you did agriculture? I wouldn't have used that used those words, but yeah, I was definitely moving in that direction, you know. I and 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 I knew, and I think before before I came across Sarah's work, I don't know, I was interested in the the way that people of a certain class who may live near or in urban areas nostalgize the agrarian lifestyle. Mm. And I was interested in you know, the pat on the back that some people might give themselves, you know, going to the farmer's market, you know, mm. and like, what does it mean to like give back to the land? Or, um, you know, what does it mean to respect the land? Like how um, dangerous it can be to like uh, congratulate yourself in that situation when you have, you know, like I did, and I still do have like no relationship really to um, anyone who works on the land, right? And no relationship to the production of food. So I, I, I was interested in, looking at that and creating a piece that could provoke some of those dissonances, you know? And I think it's through whatever, I don't know what I searched for exactly, but um, Sarah's work was like at the forefront. Okay. And I guess my first question for you, Sarah, uh, and this is a two-parter. One, what does a crop scientist study? And two, you know, after having listened to a few episodes of your show, you talk just as much about the trade of working in farming as you do what if you'd said crocs crops crocs science university of florida 2011 (laughs) (laughs) if you had said to me crop science i would have thought like i don't know molecular biology or something like that you know and it depends so actually the program that i did was called a doctor of plant medicine so it was supposed to be like an md or a veterinarian for crops Um, because that hasn't really existed. That's a new thing. So typically when you go into crop science, you'd go into like fertilizer or herbicides or entomology or something like that, like a specific subfield. So it's almost like, like imagine trying to go to the doctor if the only thing we had was oncologists and cardiologists and like urologists, and we didn't have anybody that you could just, if I have a cold, I go Mm. check out what's going on. Right. Um, So crop science just evolved in a way that didn't create a lot of generalists. Um, and so they said, well, maybe we should make that. <laughs> Let's train mm-hmm. some people who can just, you know, be the one person to kind of tell you what's going on with your field. So it, it kind of depends, you know, like people specialize in different parts. I got cross-trained on purpose with the idea that this will make me be a better farmer because I had no idea how agriculture worked. Uh, you have to be born into agriculture. And if you're not, no amount of education is going to help you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was a thing that I had to learn outside of school, right? You dispel a lot of myths on your show. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's funny too. Is a thing you know, I'm also working on a book right now, and a thing that I work with the editor, uh, the editorial team a lot is, it's very easy to kind of go like, oh, people don't know how agriculture works, and, and kind of what you're getting to is that can manifest as not knowing about agriculture, or it can manifest as just over mythologizing it. And so, a thing that I have to work with my editorial team on is like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk down to people for being like, you know, you've been romanticizing this too much because everybody has been lied to constantly about how. It's romantic. Like we're fed this myth all the time. And so like, it's really important to, to me to kind of dispel myths and like, yeah, it's aggravating that people misunderstand it, but also to remember, like, there's a very real reason it's the people are lied to all the time. And, um, to kind of not take that personally and go like, Hey, we're, we're all getting kind of, 
My mom would call it playing mushroom with people. You keep them in the dark and you feed them bullshit. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a wise person. Yeah, yeah. So we're all getting some of that treatment. And in order to really do better with our food system, we kind of have to just, just get some better information out there and do it in a way that's open and doesn't use a lot of like, there's a lot of shame-based language about like them city people just don't know. And you're like, well, nobody knows someone else's job. You know, like yeah. you don't expect people to know what grocers do or cobblers do in any detail. But when it comes to farmers, it's like, well, something's wrong with you because you don't know. Right. So just talk about the trade and like be normal about it. I thought that would be a novel idea. Yeah. And what's so central to Ted's piece is the, like I said, the impacts of settler colonialism mm -hmm. on agriculture today. And you pointed me to this episode I mentioned, the seventh on your show. It's called Grappling with Our Ghosts. <clears throat> Could I ask you to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that also, in that, you're also uh, addressing this myth, the, the romantic myth about the family farm. Sure, yeah. So Grappling with Our Ghosts came out of a few things. I was grappling with a lot at that time. There's a few different ways that the European settler core like really still is very in charge of how our culture works, right? So one of them is agriculture. One of them is like how a lot of Christianity manifests. And I grew up in kind of a very high control church. So I was kind of unpacking this around the same time that I started podcasting and I saw a lot of the same stuff in agriculture, you know, talking to a lot of my peers who did grow up on farms. It was not a great experience. You know, we have kind of this mythology of like, oh, the family farm is this wholesome, nurturing place. And they can be, don't get me wrong. Like you can have land in your family and decide to be good to each other. That is definitely an option that is available to you, but that is not always the case. If you have somebody who decides to be a controlling dictatorial family member, having land makes it very easy to do that. Isolation makes it very easy to do that. Um, the fact that a lot of your family fortune is dependent on this one piece of property that usually one person in the family controls with the title and they get to decide who inherits, you know, who inherits it gives them a ton of power. Um, there's a lot of, child labor, you know, and it, that kind of gets romanticized too, in a way of like, oh yeah, everybody used to work together. And I'm like, okay, well back in the day, they didn't have tractors. They didn't have manure pits. They didn't have electric fences, all this stuff that's really, really dangerous. Not to say it was safe back in the day, but people actually had to do that to survive. Now it is optional and we have a lot more deadly equipment and we're still doing it. Mm. So if you go to agricultural communities, everybody knows a story of a kid who drowned in a manure pit, someone who got run over by a tractor, like just horrific injuries. And it's treated as normal and just how it has to be. So that kind of thing also happens to workers as well at a very high rate. Um, <laughs> looked up some worker safety stats and like farms are way more dangerous than oil rigs <laughs> to wow. work on. Yeah. Um, and so you have workers who are like really abused and they're put in these very dangerous situations because their lives are seen as cheap and pointless. And so like, why bother with doing it properly? And then, but also the farmers are kind of treating their own kids the same way. And so, um, just talking to my peers who kind of grew, grown up on family farms and were also seeing some of the same issues and their perspective on it because they've been in it since they were kids and like maybe some crazy stuff had happened to them. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying that's where that episode came from. There's, there's a heredity of like this culture is passed down through families, you know, both like the, the super ultra right-wing Christianity tends to come down through families. There's all this emphasis on family. That's how it's passed down to you. Some of us grew up there and we're like, this isn't great. And agriculture is a lot the same way. It's very much based on uh, white families passing down these traditions within their own ranks and kind of expecting that to be, this is how we're going to continue this culture overall um, is by having a lot of kids and promoting that culture that way. So um, yeah, that's kind of a lot of what went into that is like, oh, this culture is not great. And we have to unpack a yeah. lot of pieces of it. Mm. If you could summarize how we ended up where we are, where farmers require subsidies and 
where those subsidies go and how that's not fixing the problem. And Sure. Yeah. So first of all, they don't require subsidies. They just get them because they're fun. <laughs> um, I'm going to get razzed for saying that, but it's true. Um, most people, especially like the earliest colonists, did not come over to be farmers because that was understood in Europe to be a peasant job. Mm. I was like, like, the word farmer is complicated, but they didn't come to do agricultural labor. They didn't come to cultivate their own land. They came to get land and get somebody else to work for it. A lot of the earliest colonies in the Americas were Spanish. And the way the Spanish did it was basically just establish feudal fiefdoms. You know, they're like, I'm going to claim this land. And now the Indians who live here are going to be peasants and they're going to work for me. Um, they were able to get that to work to some extent down there because they had very dense populations. Uh, didn't work so well in North America. The just smallpox kind of did a number on that plan. Mm -hmm. And so it, either way, you know, they, they found a way to improvise. They're like, oh, we'll just improvise by bringing over enslaved people. We're going to bring over indentured servants and they're going to be my, my serfs instead. And so then we have a history where enslaved and indentured people started teaming up and saying, we well, don't want to live this way. And so, you know, the colonists who came over and were in charge of the land started going, okay, we need to invent racism to keep these people from working together. It was not, nobody's born coming out of the womb going like, hmm, people with different color skin than me are whack. You know, like that's a thing that people have to be taught. And that means at some point we had to like start doing it, right? Two things, you've mentioned improvisation a couple times, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that that thread has carried, you know, I think on, on that episode you talk about how the decision to apply pesticide is almost whimsical. Um, yeah, there's just... <laughs> I'm sure a farmer might resent that take on it, but... I mean, yeah, well, sometimes they do it on a calendar. They're just kind of like, well, it's the third week of May and it's time to spray this. And sometimes it's it's kind of like, I feel like there are a lot of bugs, but there's you can kind of... We know how many might actually economically cause a problem. You just have to actually go count them and look it up. And so that's like more time than sometimes people are willing to spend on it. It depends on the operation. Um, but yeah, like a lot of stuff that happens in agriculture, like, again, it's presented to us as like, this is timeless wisdom and these people know what they're doing. And I, what I learned as a crop scientist and working with farmers and kind of getting into their thought process is like, oh, no, they're just kind of making it up as they go along like, like everybody else, um, which is cool. That is part of the human experience. But when... Like land is a finite resource. We're not making more of it, right? It is a natural resource that everybody depends on to live. And so maybe we shouldn't improvise. <laughs> maybe we should have a better plan. You know, like maybe we should think this through a little bit more. Because um, the food system we have right now that grew out of a few people land grabbing, you know, and, and went through several centuries of evolution and change over time. But that's still basically the philosophy that we have is like, if you own land, it's just your estate and you can do whatever you want and nobody can tell you boo. And if you want to grow more and more corn, even though we don't need more and more corn, that's your right. And we're going to pay you extra to do it because, because you have it and you have to make money. So we have to make it easy for you. Like that's really the logic that it And they've been lobbied to. to pay people to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, there's the farmers in the U.S. were growing too much corn since the 1790s. So it's not like because of subsidies, they've been doing it for a long time. It's just because corn is easy to grow, right? So that's why our food system is now based on corn. That's what farmers want to grow because it's easy for them. Um, so again, like that's, I mean, Michael Pollan doesn't work in agriculture, so he didn't know that. It's okay. Like it's not <laughs> his job to know that kind of thing, but farmers ain't going to tell you that either. So this is kind of like where a lot of the misleading stuff comes from is like the people who are talking about it don't necessarily know what's happening. And the people who do know what's happening want to keep it that way, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, like that, that's kind of where our food system comes from is this idea that like, well, if you're a white male landowner, which is the majority of farmers, 95% white, something like two thirds, 70% male, 
Um, and a lot of the women, it's like technicality that they own land. There's some really interesting stuff going on with deeds where if I put the farm in my wife's name, then I can get money that's earmarked for women kind of thing. So like, Whoa. yeah, even though it's like only 70% men, the actual number is probably Everyone's higher. Everyone's got yeah. a hustle. <laughs> Everybody's got a hustle. Yeah. That's the thing you'll see happen. So, um, so it's largely, it, it's still a landed white male enterprise, you know, like just like it was in 1619. So nothing's really changed in that sense. And we still have this culture of, well, we have to help them because they're there and they're important. And like, well, why? Well, because they own land. Well, why do they own land? Because we stole it and started trading it amongst God, ourselves. God if you gave had, it to me. Yeah, it's like, because, yeah, like William Penn said. What's God the has William given Penn quote in the piece? My God has given it to me. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so it's just kind of like, well, we're here and we're cool because we own land and therefore you have to give us stuff. It's, it's really kind of what it boils down to. And that's that is what everything that we're used to seeing that's bad in agriculture is built on. You know, like it's why we have so much agribusiness. It's actually, you can break out of agribusiness. No one's forcing you to do it that way. The median farmer is a millionaire. You can't force a millionaire to do things on their own property that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Full stop, right? Partnering with companies like Purdue, Tyson, all of them, you know, like your agribusiness integrators. It's kind of like the difference between running an independent restaurant and becoming a McDonald's franchisee. So I the vast majority of what we're calling quote unquote corporate farms is family farms who franchised with, you know, one of these larger companies because it makes it easier to farm. So like it's often presented as farmers are trapped in this, but if you actually look at the financials, they're doing okay. Like for the most part, uh, I've got a whole episode that I just recorded on how like even poultry farming, which is like notoriously bad to farmers, the number of farmers suffering under that system is far outweighed by the, by the ones who are doing well under it. And that's why farmers don't want to change it. Yeah. That's, that's mm-hmm. why there's no lobbying to fix it. So this idea that we have that agribusiness came out of nowhere and forced farmers to do things badly and now they're poor is just total bonkers. It's not true at all. Mm. Uh, farmers created agribusiness to get rid of labor. They've hoisted it on the rest of us. And now it, the leopard is kind of eating some of their faces too. And they're like, ah, help us. And, uh, and kind of really calling victim about it. But the bottom line is like farmers created this through pursuing their own priorities and what they wanted to do. What do you so, mean getting rid of labor? There's a classic graph that kind of goes drifting around like food, foodie circles. This is how many farmers there used to be and it peaks in 1920 and then there's this yeah. crash. So there's, there's this idea that there used to be a ton of farmers and now there aren't. And it pe- happened because agribusiness took over after World War II, right? What really happened is after World War II, there's a lot of demand for labor, right? So for the first time in U.S. history, farm workers are able to demand a living wage. Farmers did not like that. Um, tractors the were hard. Owners. Yeah. Yeah, they, they hate it now. Like I, I looked at actually the wages. Um, in 1950, the farm worker wage hit about $15 an hour, it, you know, inflation adjusted for now, which is what California farm workers have just won, you know, a couple years ago. And so the corner of the tech industry that is making labor-saving equipment is suddenly getting all this money and attention. So we have this amazing tie-in between ag, labor, and technology that is still very alive. Um, in fact, I went to a, a tech conference or an agriculture technology conference once, and I got up there because I was like still kind of naive. I thought one of people wanted to make the world a better place, and that's why they were there. And I said, hey, so you guys understand that like the only reason anybody's paying you any attention and the only reason you're getting any money and in investment right now is because California farm workers just won overtime protections and a $15 an hour minimum wage, right? That's the only reason anybody gives a shit about you. Mm. So if you want to survive as an industry, what should you do? Support UFW. And you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. And I was like, oh, so we're supposed to say that. Yeah. Okay. An- another myth that you try and dispel is that this idea that land creates wealth. And you say it's not land that creates wealth. You point out it's people that create wealth. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, because land is there, you know, land is going to do its own thing. If you want to use it to create human food or human wealth, like typically there's some labor involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't even mean like in a modern agribusiness context, like if you're, if you're out gathering nuts and berries, that's labor, right? There's, there's a human labor component to everything that we do. Um, You know, like even if you're just like living out in the woods, gathering mushrooms, that's labor, right? Um, When animals plow for you, that's labor, you know? And so I think we have a lot of resistance to thinking about labor as existing in agriculture beyond like, oh yeah, like the migrant farm workers. Yeah, yeah, we totally like feel for them, right? But that's like, that's what farm labor means. Everything involved in making food is labor. Um, Growing wheat is labor. Harvesting wheat is labor. Threshing and grinding it and turning into bread is also labor, right? And the vast majority of the effort that it takes to turn land into bread is not in growing grain or harvesting it. It's in the grinding and the storing and the, the cooking it into bread. Like that's where most of the work in the food system actually is. It's not on the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, you know, so number one, there there is more labor in managing land than people think. Um, you know, even historically before agribusiness became a thing um, or before agriculture was invented, there was still labor involved in managing land and getting food, right? And then most of the labor involved in the food system is also not land oriented at all. It's actually preparing, storing and preserving food. And so we have, yeah, there's this idea that like farmers are owed a certain amount of the food dollar because, well, they're doing so much of the work. Like we see them sweating out in the field. I'm like, yeah, but they're getting like thousands of pounds of grain harvested per hour. (laughs) You know, like they're, the actual amount of time spent per pound of flour on the farm is not very much. The amount of work that goes into making bread, you know, like a loaf of bread is mostly happening off the farm. That's why that's where most of the money is going. Now there's also some weird, funny business, you know, in the agriculture food chain and the, and the food supply chain where people are doing extractive practices. That is also very true. However, if you get rid of that, farmers are still not doing most of the work um, of making food. So that's the thing that was really important to me is, um, you know, we, again, we have this like idea that farmers are hallowed because they work harder than everybody else. And I'm like, everybody's working two or three jobs at this point. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about the, um, or if you could, you know, have your way with the romantic notion of the family farm. Yeah. So the small family farm is actually a weird model. Historically, most people have not done that um, because logistically it just doesn't work very well. And that's not a modern problem. That's just a, again, like kind of going back to the land thing. Like there's always been labor involved in Mm -hmm. in managing land. Um, The best way to handle that labor has never been a small nuclear family. Mm -hmm. Um, so like in prehistoric times, so you have a lot of places in the world where people use fire to manage land, right? Uh, you can't do that if everybody's got like a small 40 acre plot because fire is just going to keep going, yeah. right? So you got to manage a whole bunch of land in sync, like maybe a whole watershed. So this is why you have like, particularly in you know North America where people are living in tribal governments, you know, like the tribes are a government. Um, so like they're living in like actual tribal communities. This is how... Um, they managed their land was at the tribal level. It wasn't at the nuclear family level. It was like maybe extended families of clans, but mostly at the tribe level. Like we have a whole watershed that we're taking care of and we're going to do our burns this month. You know, they're Mm -hmm. kind of really coordinating that at a level that white people still don't do. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The approach of doing small family farms was something that was really invented to facilitate colonization of North America. Mm. Um, And then other places that British colonized as well. Um, in terms of just land plots. Yeah. Like it is a colonial system that doesn't mm-hmm. actually make any sense for growing food. So like I said, like, you know, if you were to just drop down from the sky and say, here's how to run a sensible food system, you would not do it the way we're doing it. So small family farms might be the first thing to go. Like they're the mm-hmm. reason we have agribusiness because a small nuclear family running any size plot of land, there's just too many tasks involved in managing land competently for a nuclear family to do. Like even if grandpa and grandma and some aunties are there, 
Um, that's why there's been such a drive to create mechanization to replace labor. It's also because I think humans were made for better things than harvesting grain repetitively for weeks at a time. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think manual farm labor is like a thing to aspire to. It's simply, yeah. that's what people had to do. Um, so mechanization, I think is fine. It's just that it's done in a way to enrich estate holders, basically like the way we handle land instead of like a sensible way where you're handling a watershed that may need certain things at certain times. We have it all broken up into this tiny little chessboard of everybody's trying to do different things. It's really hard to organize on a larger level in the way that you need to actually run a sensible food system. So, and it's very hard to get people to think of different ways to do it because we're taught that like the family farm is holy and sacred and it's the best thing we could possibly do. And there's, there's nothing to consider beyond that. We do have a lot of really good examples of alternative land management systems in the United States. A lot of tribal governments are still running farms. So like the Gila River Indian community, I think got some water allotments back. So they've been doing some really cool stuff with agriculture in the Southwest where it's very hard to do conserving water. See the Yakima Nation up in central Washington, like is running a kick butt orchard. You know, like I was auditing a lot of, you know, just like mainstream Anglo farms and they did things a certain way and then got to the Yakima Nation and they were able to run a much tighter program because they had more hands on deck, mm. you know? And um, you also say, yeah. you point out that the, those family farms that pay their workers higher wages tend to either lose less money or actually turn a profit. Is that right? Yeah. So that was a thing that kind of drove me nuts was like the conventional wisdom in agriculture is the only way to get ahead is abuse people, you know, like take bad care of your land because you don't have money to do it right. Um, and then once or twice a month, you know, like out working with farmers, uh, running audits, you'd run into a farm that like treated people well, paid them well, you know, like it, it's still farm wages. It's not like you're going to earn a fortune on it, but they paid them decent living wage. Mm -hmm. Um, so they come back every year, they're already trained. Um, so they were able to do like more detailed things on their farm. They're able to take better care of the place because they had highly trained people coming back every year. Um, there's a lot to say about business development on a farm. Uh, a lot of people just assume that the only way to operate a farm is to grow bulk commodities and sell them to a processor. And then you're not going to get paid a lot. And they're like, oh, we're forced to do it this way. No, you're not. Uh, mm -hmm. You can do a lot of that stuff yourself and get a higher price. Like sell straight to the grocery stores because you get your food safety audit. That's why I was there, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> That's all it takes. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not easy, you know, like it, it is work to pass. It's another season. skill. Yeah. It's another skill. And if you have a nuclear family, you know, typically you have somebody with an off farm job, maybe two people. And then you have like, that's why they don't invest in the business. It's just kind of, there's, there's a whole thing about like why farmers typically have off farm jobs. And that's actually historically more normal in the U S than it is an oddity. Mm, wow. Yeah. When farmers say we've been forced to take off farm jobs, I'm like, mm, that's what you were always doing. Look at what you look at your grandpa's journal, mm. you know? Well, so I want to point out, you say that the key, one of the key components that the the farm is keeping it from becoming profitable is marketing skill. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's very pink collared. And what'll happen if a farm is actually doing its own marketing is generally it's the woman of the farm. It's if it's a mom and pop operation, which 95% of us farm, farms are, uh, mom is going to be in charge of marketing. And the second she actually gets to take that and run with it, she's going to make more money than pop. Mm. So, <laughs> so we know like how like they're like misogyny built in pet, you know how much conservative pet. landed men love that yeah so. <laughs> huh. and so, so that's marketing, a big problem yeah. marketing can be anything from getting it to the farmer's market to actually getting into stores to mm -hmm. yeah just depending on the scale of your farm you know what your size is what you're doing i mean the ideal is you sell it directly to people who come to your farm because then they're doing all the work of transporting it right that's the dream but that's there's only so many people who can do that yeah um so if you want to grow beyond a very small farm you've got a basically you have to sell directly to grocery stores. So you do have to sell a certain volume. 
Um, a lot of grocery stores are willing to work with local farmers. You do have to pass a food safety audit, which um, again, I'm a professional at food safety. So to me, it doesn't seem that hard. The on-ramp is a lot. You do feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, but then you get through it and then you can do it and you can take care of yourself financially in a much better way. Mm. Um, yeah. So that tie between like just conservative family values and patriarchy and the way agribusiness works, like it's very, very tight. And um, when we talk about international development, I think in the US, uh, the philanthropic do-gooders very well understand that there's a tie between empowering women and like greater economic development. Right. But when it comes to the United States, who are we giving farm loans to? It's not women. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we spent a couple, you know, three, 400 years making sure that it was only landed white men who could get access to farm loans, which actually, again, just did a couple episodes talking about how that has impacted the development of U.S. agriculture. Um, but like barring everybody else, farmers of color, white women, uh, from being able to access capital and develop land has really helped foster agribusiness. Like it mm. is in many ways, again, like just not to bang on landed white men, um, <laughs> but like they had all the money, they had all the resources and they made certain choices with it that got us where we are now. Um, and, you know, historically like hashtag not all men, but yeah, enough of them that it shaped the way our food system works, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so to have had that much impact on how the food system works, to have gained that much from it personally, and then like complain when people point it out is like classic farmer move. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in your estimation, farms that work, what system would work? Let's bring it back to the person coming down from Mars. So there's there's a lot of different ways to arrange it. Like you could arrange farms that are like a utility, like just like we do with electricity and water. It's like, well, we know we need roughly this amount of wheat, so we're going to grow up some. And if we don't have that much, then we'll buy some from the outside to store for this area. That's a thing we could do, but we just don't think to do it because we're stuck on the idea of family farms, right? Mm. You could do consumer co-ops um, where you're like, hey, we're this group of two, 300 people, and we want this much melons. So yeah. we're going to gather the money, do the fundraising, and then you're going to make a greenhouse and we're going to grow some melons. Um, that's an option. Uh, Worker-owned farms are an option. And people lose their minds at this one. And I'm like, have you ever seen a worker-owned coffee shop? It's like that, but it's a farm. <laughs> you know, like mm. It's not that exotic. It's actually a business format we do have a lot of experience with. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like I think just the idea that the family owned farm is like the one right way to do it has really clouded us to like, there's a whole world full of possibilities out there that could meet our needs so much better. And we just don't think to, to look at it because we're so used to this one solution being kind of like forced down our throat by the people who own land. Mm. Okay. Well, that's a, a good note to end on. Yeah. Ted and Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's been fun. You can catch Ted's solo show at Carnegie Hall in New York City on October 27th. For more information about this performance and Ted's work in general, please visit his website, tedhearn.com. The best way to keep up with Sarah is to check out her podcast, Farm to Tabor, and follow her on social media. Her Twitter handle is at saratabor underscore bww. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, social media manager is Bailey Constis, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. If you liked today's episode, the best way you can support us is to give us a review, tell a friend about the show, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.